When the uh, Japanese military attacked the Naval and Air Force Base of uh, Pearl Harbor, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, yeah, I think they, they may have made a slight miscalculation. On the one hand, um, it seems pretty obvious that they thought they would be able to do more damage in the attack. They did plenty of damage, but there were a couple aircraft carriers that weren't in. As you, know this, you know the drill. You know the story, I'm sure. Uh, and at the same time, they underestimated the, the will of the American people and what was going to come back at them. They did not correctly calculate that. But that's the nature of war, isn't it? When you invade another country, and I think, you know, as a nation, we've, over the last 20 years, we've, we've had some experience in this ourselves, um, it will be a volatile thing, meaning it will be violent, it will be unpredictable, you cannot guarantee what the outcome of that is going to be. So today what we're looking at is something like an invasion. This is the beginning of the first missionary journey, what we call Paul's First missionary journey. The gospel is going to come to a place that is Gentile territory, earnestly Gentile territory. It's going to leave Antioch. It's going to go to Cyprus. You have Paul and Barnabas going there. And it really is one of those kind of scenarios where in that invasion, you can't completely predict what the outcome is going to be, but it is volatile. It is volatile. Here's the idea today. The gospel produces volatile reaction reactions when it invades new territory. You say, well, that's pretty simple. I I get that. You don't need to preach a whole sermon on that. Uh, I mean, we get it, but do we get it? Do we really understand that this is the very nature of things? There are going to be four reactions that we see. I I think there are probably more possible reactions, but in the text, I see four reactions or outcomes of this invasion. The first one of these is that it can transform. It can transform. Up until now, who has been the guy that's been in the lead when you talk about Saul and Barnabas? It's been Barnabas. In fact, it hasn't been worded that way. It has not been worded Saul and Barnabas. It's been consistently worded Barnabas and Saul. I went back and counted five, five times up till now where it's Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul. But look at, look at the text. We're going we're gonna to jump in. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, this is important that we see it's the Spirit behind all of these things. They went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. This is Barnabas's home island. Do you realize that? You, you may remember that from early on when we first met him, that he was said to have been from Cyprus. So this would be like if you were taking a missionary journey to, um, oh, I don't know, Ireland, and, uh, and uh, one of the guys with you is named O'Reilly. Who are you going to put in charge? Who's going to be the guy that's going to be up front, uh, or at least who you would expect to be up front? First, we're not uh, led to, to think otherwise. We, we th- we, that is, that Barnabas would be in the lead. They travel from Antioch uh, to a port called Seleucia. So if you're doing the geography of it, they're just going a little bit south from Antioch to this little port city of Seleucia, and they go across the Mediterranean, not very far. They go west across the Mediterranean. They hit Cyprus. They land at a place called um, Salamis, which was a port city. And it says, they proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. So who's the leader at this point? They. We don't know, right? It's unspecified. They go to the Jewish people. They start hopping from one synagogue. They're sort of, you know, like in the, if we keep it in war footing, the, the island hopping back 
you know, in the Pacific theater of World War II, they, they, they just kept progressing to, back toward Japan through the island. This is sort of synagogue hopping. And, uh, and it makes sense because in the synagogues, they were talking to people who knew the Bible. They, the, well, the old, they knew the Old Testament. They were familiar with these things. They were familiar with the scriptures. They could have a discussion. They could get into it. And there seems, from what we can tell, to have been openness. There's no information there saying that they were resisted in the synagogues. It's at this point that we learn that John Mark is with him. How many remember John Mark? Luke has dropped his name already at least once, maybe twice. That's uh, Luke's habit. I've told you this all along. Like you get a little glimpse into somebody's life, and then they come back in a bigger way later. Um, at John Mark, by the way, is the Mark that wrote the Gospel of Mark, in case you're curious. At least that's, uh, we have pretty good reason to believe that. It says, though, that he's there to assist now, what do you picture by the word assist? Well, it could have been a very glorious position of some sort. Um, it, it is possible for the word to be something like a, a, like a scriptural assistant. You know, like when you watch one of these hearings on Capitol Hill and you got the senators asking questions and he, he's trying to make a point and he's kind of like, and then the person comes up behind and says, oh yeah, here's the, here's the document that you need at that point. It could have been something really, really high flung like that, like having the scriptures with him and pulls out the scroll and hands it to Paul. But probably not. Probably he's carrying the baggage. That, that is probably his key role is he's probably there for muscle. Um, the thing, then things start to heat up. We don't know what kind of reception they, they had by the Jews in the synagogues, but uh, they move westward. They get all the way across Cyprus, and then things kind of get gnarly, as we say in Kansas, from all our surfing. Um, Acts 13.6, when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. So they've, they've gone across the whole island, Salamis, all the way to Paphos. Paphos is where the, like the Roman proconsul is going to be. That's where they had their, their seat of power. And uh, everything's fine. And then all of a sudden they hit this roadblock. This is where finally we get some, some unexpected, some volatility. Uh, we, we have this guy, he's Jewish, he's a false prophet, and he's a magician with a rather interesting name. How many found the name Bar-Jesus just a little, well, that seems weird, doesn't it? And if you're familiar with scripture, you know a little bit about how the Aramaic people, uh, you know, the, the Hebrews speaking Aramaic, how they formed their names. It's like Swenson and Peter, Peterson and Johnson. Um, Bar meant son of. Like, uh, you know, Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah. Here, Bar-Jesus. Like, well, did Jesus have a kid? And did he grow up really, really fast? Uh, no, Jesus was a very, very popular name. Yeshua, Joshua, you know. It, it also means salvation. So it could literally be uh, son of salvation. And this guy had attached himself to the Roman uh, proconsul as kind of an advisor of sorts. The text says that... Uh, he was with Sergius Paulus. We're going to learn more about him in a moment. But it says he was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. Well, when the Roman proconsul summons you, that's not really just an invitation. That's an order. Now, why did he want Paul and Barnabas, or Barnabas and Saul to come and, and, and talk to him? Well, Maybe because he just wanted to make sure he knew what was going on on his island. 
I'm sure he would have regarded it as his island. And there's these people, and they're coming through, and we're hearing rumors. So maybe we just got to hear, make sure that they're solid. Maybe there's a spiritual curiosity um, going on at this, this point. We don't really know. What we do know is that Bar-Jesus sees it, and he sees red. Probably he's got a racket going. You know, the Romans were like all ancient people, and then some that they wanted to use magic and divination to give them an edge. Like if you're going to go into battle and you're a Roman general, you, you got to, I don't know, you take the guts out of a chicken or something, an auger, what, what's going to happen. And so the, he brings, obviously, uh, Sergius Paulus brings on this Bar-Jesus guy kind of on the payroll to give him the inside scoop on things. Verse 8, but Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So before the proconsul can get to the faith, this guy's trying to turn them away from the faith. Does this sound kind of like a familiar sort of story to you in a way? How often have we heard stories about missionaries going to tribal-type cultures? When I say tribe, I'm thinking of, of, of Africa and in the... Uh, Amazon rainforest and places like that across the world where usually you're dealing with animism and within animism in a tribe like that you would often have a witch doctor or what's the more common word today that people use shaman right something like that and then you get a power encounter happening between the gospel and and that 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 person that represents that that religion here's when we see this sudden shift take place it's a long time getting to my point, but we, we, we're going to get here. Um, look at verse 9. See if you can recognize what happens here. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. Now notice two things right away that, that are happening here. First of all, for the, we have for the very first time Paul called Paul. I've been calling him Paul because it's just hard for me to say Saul every time. Uh, but yeah, up till now it had been Saul. Now all at once we hear the word Paul and we will never hear the word Saul again except for those times when Paul is looking back and talking about his conversion on the road to Damascus and he'll say, I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul. But other than that, that's the last time you're going to hear the name Saul. And, uh, and, of course, Paul was his Roman name, and now they're witnessing throughout the Roman Empire. It kind of makes sense. What follows, though, is an apostolic miracle. And it will be the first apostolic miracle that the apostle Paul actually does. And it will be Paul taking the lead. It's very much like when Peter deals with the Ananias and Sapphira. You remember that whole story? And it's kind of a judgment miracle. Same thing of sorts happens here, and Paul establishes himself. And I think there's something fitting of that, something poignant, that it's in the context of a spiritual battle that Paul emerges as Paul. I know it's the same guy. I know in one sense nothing has changed. I know that Jesus already told him all that was going to happen to him and how he was a chosen instrument and all of Nothing in one sense has changed, but it is in the context of the battle that all of a sudden his, his personality and, and his call and everything becomes really apparent. Isn't that the way it is in life? I think back to David. Do you recall that David, eventually King David, that he had been anointed king before he ever took on Goliath. Samuel had, had, had pulled him aside 
and one of the sons of Jesse, the youngest, and so you know that whole story, and he anoints him as king. He does that before the battle, before he ever goes to the battle with Goliath. And so nobody really thought of him as a king. Nobody knew, probably other than his family members, what had even happened. But he emerges in the context of battle. That's when people go, whoa, let's follow that guy. Now, eventually, I know it takes a while for Saul to be kind of taken out of the way in that, but, but that's where David really emerges. Think about Winston Churchill. You know, if we had been a British subject back in the day, we would have had mixed opinions of Winston Churchill before he became prime minister. And some, some people would have just thought, well, he's just a political hack. But you had Chamberlain, right, who famously had that appeasement uh, strategy with, with Hitler, and that hadn't gone exactly very well. And so all of a sudden, when, when Winston Churchill becomes prime minister, he just emerges as this, as this dominant figure, this, this incredible leader, the British bulldog and a living legend. Say, so, okay, well, oh, very good. So Within the context of this invasion force, this volatility, you can have people who are transformed. How, sh- how should we apply this to ourselves? Or should we even apply it to ourselves? Not everything in Acts is a there, you know, go and do likewise kind of thing. Can we really, what do we learn from that? Well, I think one thing that we learn is that greatness in the kingdom of God doesn't usually emerge or show itself in the context of peace. And maybe if you choose, if you like, I know there's, there's a peace which we have, which we always have in Christ. And so if you don't like peace, how about appeasement? It doesn't tend to emerge in the context of appeasement if we are so worried about the gospel offending people. And that's our main Focus, like, oh, I just don't want to offend anyone. I don't want anybody to be upset. I'm going to be real. I'm just going to do that Chamberlain thing where I try to, you know, not, not step on any toes. Nothing, nothing great is going to emerge within the context. It, it, if we are going to see greatness for the kingdom of God, for individuals or the church or whatever the case may be, it's only going to happen when we obediently take the gospel where it hasn't been. Because that's where the battle is, when, when, when we invade that, that territory. Secondly, yes, there is a point too. It just took a long time to get there. It can enrage. It can enrage. Uh, Elymas resisted. We don't know how or with what words. Luke doesn't choose to give him any dialogue here. Isn't that interesting? I wonder why that is. Maybe he didn't say a whole lot. Maybe it was all kind of whispered. Maybe Elemis grabs Sergius Paulus and jerks him, you know, uh, aside and does a sidebar and you're, you know, like, I don't, I don't know. But, he, but he's not happy about it. The devil doesn't tend to give up without a fight. Have you noticed that? Remember when Jesus came to the region of, of the Gerasenes? One of my favorite stories he, the, 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 you know, the bow of that little, little boat, you know, shh, into the sand and, and, and squishes and he's, Jesus' sandal he puts out there on the, and right then at that moment, who does, who comes to meet him but a demoniac, somebody with a legion of demons in him. And do you recall what he said to Jesus? See that Luke eight twenty eight. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. You get the sense that what the demon is saying when he, when he asks the question, what have you to do with me? I think he's saying, what, why are you here? 
Don't you belong back in Judea with all, the, with all the Jews and the temple and the law and all that? I'm minding my own business. I'm over here. I'm just tormenting a guy. You know, leave me alone, right? What, why, why, why are you, why are you um, harshing my groove, so to speak? If you think I'm exaggerating here about uh, the, the demonic element uh, with Elemis, uh, look at what Paul says and how he addresses him. And said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Now, if we boil that down, um, we would say that Elymas was not a ray of sunshine. He was not a good person. Paul calls him a son of the devil, which is an interesting choice of the words. Uh, of words. Uh, it, it, what was his name again? Bar-Jesus, which meant son of Jesus or son of salvation. And Paul's like, oh, no. <laughs> no, 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 no. You're not getting away with that. You, you're a son of the devil. You make straight paths crooked. What does that sound like, by the way? Did you hear something there with straight and crooked paths and all that? Does that suggest someone else in the scripture to you? John the Baptist. When John the Baptist came, his ministry, which was predicted by the Old Testament prophets, was that he was going to make the crooked paths straight, which meant he was going to make a path of repentance, of preaching repentance, such that when Christ came people would have a straight path to him, that they would see Jesus for who he is and they would be drawn to him. That's the core of what we are also up against. The devil's plan, when you boil it down, is to make straight paths crooked and to block people so that they will not find the way of salvation, so they will not find their way to Christ. I don't know a lot about the devil, you know, Um, I don't spend my time trying to understand everything that the devil has going about. Some people spend too much time, um, and, and they'll often end up saying things that the Scripture doesn't actually declare. Um, but I'll tell you what, one thing's very clear, and that's that the devil doesn't want people to be saved. Look at what it says in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. In their case, the God of this world, that would be the devil, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. How many feel uh, Paul was being a little harsh with old Elemis here? Anybody feel that way? No, no sympathy for Elemis. I mean, honestly, you know, he could have just pulled them aside. Um... When, when the police officer pulls you over for speeding, don't you want him to be, go a little easy on you? And you might have been going a fraction over the speed limit there, buddy. Um, I got you at about 12 over. Uh, but you know what? I, you look like a nice guy. I'm just going to give you a warning today. How, how, how many get that treatment? Yeah, no. And Paul could have, you, know, you think, well, Paul could have said, hey, you know, let's talk about this. Let's have a discussion. Uh, let me point out where you're wrong on this. Nope. No, I mean, the Holy Spirit gets a hold of Paul, and, and there's this, like I said, this apostolic sort of judgment miracle. And it's like, dude, you're, you're blocking the way of the gospel. You're, blocking, you're, you're trying to stay in the way of the kingdom, and, uh, and you're going to be blind. That's harsh, isn't it? 
Now, he didn't say you're going to be blind forever. He said you're going to be blind for a time. You're not going to be able to see the sun for some days. And that, isn't that very oddly similar to what happened to Paul? Paul had been a persecutor of the church. He meets Jesus on the road to Damascus. We always think of that as inherently a good and friendly and wonderful encounter. But don't forget, Paul was struck blind for a time during that. There was, there was judgment along with the grace of the gospel coming to him. And kind of the same thing happens to Elymas. And it's, it's humiliating and pathetic if you look at it. He has to, Luke doesn't spare us the detail. He goes, this guy goes out of there groping, looking to find his way. He doesn't know what it like, it's like or means to be blind, but he's blind now, and he has to beg people to lead him by the hand. When we preach the gospel, and I'm... I like to say it that way when we preach the gospel. I don't want you to only apply this with the idea of just you and picturing yourself having to go out and stand on a street corner and proclaim the gospel. But, but when we, when we as a church, when we collectively and individually, uh, you know, as a team, when we are proclaiming the gospel, we're invading enemy territory. We are. That's just the, the devil has no interest in seeing anyone saved. And so wherever you're proclaiming the gospel to those who are in darkness, you are kicking over a hornet's nest. Why would you do that? If you're smart, you wouldn't do it, right? Who goes around kicking over a hornet's nest? The problem is that's what we're called to do. True evil has to be resisted. We must resist evil when that evil is making crooked the straight paths that take people to Jesus. And that means that, 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 we, take, that we have to take a risk. We have to speak clearly. We're, we don't have the gift that Paul had. So I don't want any of you taking this by application and going out, yeah, boy, the next time some unbeliever gets lippy with me, I am going to pull a curse down on them. Um, no. <laughs> Unless you become an apostle overnight, which won't happen, um, that shouldn't be the way you apply this. But, but we are still called to speak the same truth. The same truth about judgment of, against unrighteousness and sin and the message of salvation for those who will hear. Thirdly, it can produce faith. Yay, <laughs> that's a good thing. It's interesting that we don't read about a massive revival on the Isle of Cyprus And in some ways, I think Cyprus wasn't the target, the initial target, as much as it was a place to go through on the way to where they were going. We know the gospel, in some ways, had already come to Cyprus, at least in part. Maybe that's why we don't hear about a great revival. But it does does catch this really prominent person. Uh, It says in verse 12, Then the proconsul believed when he saw what occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So this guy, Sergius Paulus, who's a smart guy, we're told he's an, he's an intelligent guy, he hears the gospel, he hears, hears that truth, he sees what happens with, uh, with Elemis, and it says he believes. I take this to be a genuine conversion. Now some people, uh, some commentators think that it was a sort of a kind of a, uh, you know, like not persuasion in the full sense, but I think that's what's being told. Don't you? Just because we don't hear about him later in one of the letters of Paul or something doesn't mean that, he, that this wasn't true. When the gospel invades new territory, and this is the beautiful thing, sooner or later, yes, there will be resistance, but sooner or later, there will be those who find that, that path to the Lord. You, you have to break a few eggs to make an omelet. How many have heard that old saw, right? You have to break a few eggs to make an omelet. 
Well, the omelet's there. The goal of the omelet, that's, that's the good that will come from there. There will be those who will come to Christ. Sharing the gospel is a lot more like uh, kicking down doors than standing around a campfire holding hands singing Kumbaya. Isn't that weird? But it's true. I'm probably the only person here who's ever actually stood around a campfire, held hands, and sung Kumbaya. Any, any, anybody? Oh, yeah, that's right. We've got a few people that are from my generation. Yes, yeah. It's a beautiful thing. I mean, yeah, we should really, we should just do that sometimes at church. We'll build a big bonfire. But, but, but invading the territory of, of the enemy Taking the gospel where it hasn't been heard, it's a lot more violent than that. It is a lot more like kicking down doors. And I think we're aware of that in our culture today in a way that we haven't been for maybe since the founding of our nation. Here's what I mean by that. Today in our culture, words are being equated with violence. Have you noticed this? this cha- it, it wasn't that way when I was young. When I went to the university, that wasn't a thing. There was no such thing as having an opinion that was considered violent, I, I guess, unless you said, hey, let's throw Molotov cocktails at the professor who's with me. Uh, apart from that, just having an opinion was just having an opinion. And, and now there, there's, there's terms like microaggression and triggering and, and all of these things, and, and they don't all mean the same thing, but the, the, they go to the idea that speech itself can be violent just by holding an opinion that's contrary to another person. Like, you shouldn't tell that person that. It might hurt their feelings or because you know, they've got this view and now you're saying they're wrong and you shouldn't say, yeah, you, you, you get the idea. But maybe that's a good thing. Maybe we should own that. Maybe when people say, oh, you know, that's violence. You're, you're speaking violence there when you, when you proclaim the gospel, when you tell me I'm a sinner, when you tell me that there's only one God and there's only one way to God through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe we should just own that and go, yeah, I get that. I get that. I get that I'm invading. And, but, but, that's, but, but that's the nature of the gospel, and, and that's what I'm here to do. And, and you'll, you'll have to deal with it, but... It is what it is. If, if maybe as Christians, if we just accepted that instead of fighting it, like, no, no, this isn't, this isn't violent at all. Huh? Maybe it is. Maybe it is. But see, the payoff is that some will listen and some will receive and come to Christ. Last point, it can be too hard to bear. It can be, that seems like a weird point right there, doesn't it? It can be too hard to bear. Look at verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Do you catch what's going on there? This is not an approved leave. Luke is not telling us, yeah, it was all part of the itinerary beforehand. You know, we got to Perga at Pamphylia, and then according to plan, John Mark took off and went back home. New. (laughs) And we'll find that out later. If if it's not clear now, it will become clear later. This is unapproved. This is is AWOL. It was not a good thing. In fact, this looks very much like when you remember what Jesus said about putting your hand to the plow and looking back. For all the world, that's what it looks like in the case of John Mark at this point. Why did he do it? Why would he have turned back? Not that we need to know. We don't have to know. But what? It's an interesting question to ponder. He may have just been homesick. This is reading between the lines, and I could be wrong, uh, but when you look back and there's the mention of his mother 
and everything back in Jerusalem and the home and all that where Rhoda was, that whole deal. He might have been tied to his mama's apron strings a little bit too much. He gets out there, and then the food at Cyprus. We all know the food on Cyprus is just it's spicy. It doesn't agree with your, your whatever it is. Maybe he, didn't, maybe he just, just wanted to be back in familiar territory. How many of us would be the same way? He may have been tired. Again, I think when it says that he was their assistant, I think it means he was schlepping their bags wherever they went. He was a glorified uh, bellboy. We think, and I'll come back to this later when we get to it, but we think that uh, Paul may have been actually suffering from malaria at this point. Now, that's reconstructing a lot of different things from different places in the New Testament. But if that's the case, and if he, if he was moving to sort of higher ground to get away from the heat and everything... Um, he would have been in a very delicate position. And Mark would have had to carry his bags. And so, yeah, in, in essence, it may have just been like, yeah, this is too much, man, I'm tired. My, I got it, such an ache in my back, such a crick. May I explain why Paul was so unwilling to take him uh, back? But I think w- one of the things that's probably most easy to imagine here is, uh, is something uh, very close to all of us, and that is I, I think he was jealous I think he was jealous for his cousin Barnabas. Consider for a moment what has transpired here. You, you, you get this complete switch now, this turnaround. Barnabas has been the lead all at once. Right at this pivotal moment, Paul just like steps right in front of Barnabas. Barnabas is like mid-sentence. How do I answer this guy? Paul just stands up and, and, and shows himself to be an apostle in power. And if, under, if you're John Mark, this is your cousin. This is your mom's first cousin. It's your second cousin. And you have probably idolized and practically worshipped this guy. And if, there are, if there's any character in the New Testament that we would look up to and love today who just fit perfectly in our church, it would be Barnabas. We would take Barnabas in a heartbeat. This guy, I mean, he gave land and stuff and gave money to the church, and he was an encourager. He came alongside people like Paul. Remember when Paul couldn't, nobody wanted to talk to Paul, a.k.a. Saul, and, and Barnabas is the one that comes along and introduces him to the apostles, and when you know, Paul has to flee Jerusalem. He ends up in, in Tarsus. It's Barnabas that goes and gets him and brings him back. And I think if, if you're Luke, you're sitting there going, who does Paul think he is? Why would he, why would he do that? But whatever the reason, he ditched them. And, and what he shows in that moment is that he can't really bear the load. He can't bear the cost of discipleship. And Jesus encourages us to look and count the cost of what it means to follow Jesus. The the gospel has to go forward. The the kingdom of Christ will spread from shore to shore, as it were. But we must question, we must answer the question for ourselves, can I bear whatever cost comes through that? I think there's a cautionary tale here. It's something like this. See John Mark. Did you have these books when you were a kid? See John Mark. See John Mark run. Don't be John Mark. That, that's dressed up, but that's the point. A church that proclaims the gospel, that preaches and believes the word and speaks that truth into a hostile world will not be always the safest place. Can we own that as a church? Grace Community Church, do we own that? We're not promising you a safe, safe place here at, at, at Grace. 
in that, in that, you know what I mean. It's safe in one sense, relatively. But, but the gospel kind of, when the gospel interacts with a, a, a world that's against the gospel, it's volatile. It's, it's not predictable, and, and we understand that. We proclaim a gospel that frees men and women from sin and death and hell and, and brings them eternal life. But at the same time, we're proclaiming a gospel that condemns sin in man, that, that, that pronounces judgment, the judgment of God, and calls men to repent and, and turn to him. And some, for some people, that is too overwhelming. When I was a kid, we used to sing from books. It's true. I see a lot of people questioning this possibility. It's true. We didn't, we didn't have fancy projectors and stuff, and we had books. They were called hymnals. And, um, and I, I ha- there was a song that we used to sing back in the day. Back in my day. When I was a kid, we sang this song. It was such a, a militaristic-sounding song that, that a lot of people didn't want to sing it, and eventually the hymnals stopped carrying this, this hymn um, in them at all. It was, this, it was the song, Onward Christian Soldiers. I'm looking for a hand. Anybody ever sung that song? Woohoo! Okay, Onward Christian Soldiers, Marching as to War. Oh, don't sing that. That just sounds jingoistic and horrible. No, marching as to war with the cross of Jesus going on before Christ the royal master leads against the foe forward into battle. That's what it is. Forward into battle. See his banners flow. That's, yeah, yeah. I, I think we have to own that in a good way. We're invaders. We are. And if, and if you're here today and you're not a believer and that's how you feel, I think that's completely understandable. That's how I would feel. It's, it, 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 comes, it's, it just crashes into every other worldview. It doesn't matter what other worldview you hold. The Bible says this is the truth. You are condemned as a sinner. You are lost, you are blind, you are without hope and without God in the world. But it also says that Jesus Christ, God's son, came into the world to die for sinners. Such that if you see this, if you can accept this, if your eyes are open to that, then you will believe and you will receive salvation from all of those things. So we just, yeah, it's an invasion, it's a friendly invasion, but it's an invasion. So we call you to surrender to Christ and be saved today. Let's pray. Father, it's easy for us at times to lose uh, focus and, and lose a sense of, of what we are really engaged in. We are so uh, inured to the kinds of, uh, of forces that are really at work that, that we start to think it is just a, a kumbaya moment at all times when so many times lord we are in pitched battle and we just don't know it i pray lord that we would see the the value of the kingdom in a way that drives us and enlivens us and i I pray that we would not be as john mark who just got a taste of that and and didn't want whatever it was that he didn't want whatever whatever part of that lord um, he, he didn't want it at that moment. And, and Lord, may we not turn back. May we put our hand to the plow and just keep plowing until the day that, that you come back. We pray, Lord, that we might even today see someone come to faith in Christ and be brought into his kingdom, and we, we would welcome uh, such a one.
We ask it in his name. Amen.